to another episode of the Women in Oxford's History podcast. I'm Bethany. And I'm Alice. And this month we'll be looking at the life of another woman who has contributed to Oxford's history. This month we are joined by Emily Zinkin, who is an editor, researcher and writer for the F Word. She is here to talk to us about Sarah Churchill, who was a notable figure in the 17th and 18th centuries. And as Emily describes, a power behind the throne, a social prior and one of the best business people in Britain. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Could you start by giving us an introduction to Sarah Churchill's early life? Sarah uh, was born Sarah Jennings to Richard Jennings, who was a member of parliament and a minor noble who came from a fairly... um, a family with fairly encumbered estates, shall we say. But thanks to a kind of chance meeting with the Duke of York, who had later become James II, they formed a bond. And uh, that's how uh, Sarah's father was able to send her and her sister to court. So when Sarah turned up at court in 1673, she became the maid of honour to James's second wife, Mary of Medina. Uh, It was in these early years at court that Sarah met two of the most significant people in her life, Princess Anne, who we are going to get back to, and her husband, John Churchill. John also came from minor gentry and his family were also not that well off, uh, so his father was pushing him to choose Catherine Sedley, who was a wealthy mistress of James II. But in the winter between 1677 and 1678, uh, John and Sarah married in secret. And yeah, that did not come out until Sarah became pregnant. Despite this somewhat um, reclusive engagement, they were very, very devoted to each other. So how did her loyalty to James II influence what happened next in her life? It's very interesting because at the time Charles II was on the throne and a fictitious Catholic plot to assassinate the king, known as the Popish Plot, kind of gripped the country and there was a massive anti-Catholic sentiment, which wasn't great as James II himself was Catholic. And so he went into a self-imposed exile in Scotland and Sarah and John followed him there and as a result were rewarded with a baronetcy. And when they returned back to uh, England, Sarah was also made Anne's Lady of the Bedchamber, and she started relentlessly campaigning on Anne's behalf for better treatment for Anne, who was not a very popular princess. So that solidified the two's friendship and uh, really sort of set up what would come next. So James II ascended the throne in 1685, and whilst his only reign was relatively peaceful, um, with the huge amounts of anti-Catholic sentiment still around, it was never going to be smooth sailing. Um, So when a plot emerged to invite William of Orange, who was the husband of James II's daughter, Mary, to remove him from power, both Princess Anne and Sarah, as husbands, both switched their loyalties from James to William, which was a bold move because it led them both to being put under house arrest in Anne's residence at the Palace of Whitehall. Uh, But excitingly... Uh, In slightly novelesque fashion, they arranged to escape and they fled in the night to the Bishop of London's residence and then onto Nottingham to escape from being potentially executed for treason. Uh, The interesting thing at this point is that Sarah would always claim that she did this purely for Anne's benefit, um, but it was very unlikely James would have had his daughter executed, whereas John and Sarah were much more likely to be. So you start to see... Sarah as both someone who is almost an excellent PR person and historian in that she rewrites history in her own image um, and you start to see her manipulations. 
So William did then later take the throne with James II fleeing into France. Was John and Sarah's loyalty to him rewarded when he was? So interestingly, the answer is yes and no. Sarah and John get promoted again and get by being rewarded with an earldom for their support. Um, however, the fact that they had been loyal to James II was never forgotten. And um, it became public knowledge that Sarah was a big supporter for Princess Anne, who actually became probably less popular at court. Um, Sarah continued very openly campaigning in Anne's interest and it became very well known that she held a lot of sway over the princess, uh, which became a big royal drama when Mary told Anne to dismiss Sarah and Anne refused, which caused a huge rift between the sisters, which never really healed. Um, in 1689, Sarah was seen as the driving force behind a parliamentary bill to grant Princess Anne an annuity which would make her independent from the privy purse and therefore from William and Mary. Mary responded by evicting Sarah from her court lodgings and Anne followed her by leaving court. And they bonded even further when Sarah's husband, now the Earl of Marlborough, was imprisoned in the Tower of London due to a probably forged document that incriminated him by saying he still supported James II. Sarah's really becomes... A divisive figure in this time period. As Anne creeps closer to the throne, Sarah's power over her becomes far more politically engaged and it becomes really a topic for public interest. And so when Mary died of smallpox in 1694, Anne became the next in line for the throne. Um, so whilst William did restore Anne's honours and he did exonerate the Earl of Marlborough and fully restore his previous honours and offices, he actually continued to exclude Anne from government affairs and did not make her regent in his absences. And most people put this down to Sarah's influence over Anne and William's fear of that influence. So then Anne obviously becomes queen. What what happens to them both then? So Anne becomes queen in 1702 and Sarah reaches her political heyday. Uh, she's made mistress of the robes, which is the highest position a woman could hold at that time, groom of the stole, keeper of the privy purse, which basically means she controls the queen's finances and business, and ranger of Windsor Great Park. And she also controls with this the who's allowed to see the queen. And the queen is also uh, known to consult her for advice on most matters. And all of this together really makes Sarah the second most powerful woman in England. And considering how much in this time period Anne is relying on Sarah's opinions, many would argue she becomes the most powerful woman or even person in the country at this time. So at the time, the, Spanish, the War of the Spanish Succession is going on and Sarah's husband is away fighting that uh, in a very high up position uh, in the British forces. And after his victory at the Battle of Blenheim, Anne gives the two a new estate and parliamentary funds to build Woodstock Manor, which later became Blenheim Palace. And it's this introduction to Blenheim that brings Sarah into the history of Oxfordshire. Yeah, and that I forgot to mention, promotes them from earldom to dukedom, so they continue to rise in the world. But, unfortunately, it wasn't entirely smooth sailing for Sarah, despite the fact that she was in this incredible position. She unfortunately almost caused her own downfall. So issues start to arise between Anne and Sarah, partially because Sarah is frequently away, supervising the building of Blenheim Palace, and often away from court, and also because Sarah was a very, very vocal supporter of the Whig party due to their support of the war her husband was fighting in. 
And Anne's political alliances often went uh, with the Tory party because they were known as the church party and she had very, very deep religious convictions. Um, so coupled with her long absences from court, um, she was also not that kind to the Queen. Uh, Sarah is not, as we'll see, a particularly, uh, shall we say, soft person. Um, she would often tell the Queen off and um, didn't show her the sort of kindness that she wanted. Uh, in fact, Sarah actually thought that Anne was a bit boring. Unfortunately, Sarah's uh, only surviving son dies in 1703, and uh, Sarah actually pushes Anne away even more. But when Anne's husband, the Prince George of Denmark, dies in 1708, she insists on being with Anne uh, and actually scolds her for grieving over her husband, uh, tells her what to do, and then refused to wear what was sort of considered proper mourning clothes, uh, which very much put a rift that would never really heal between the two women. Who was Abigail Masham? Abigail Masham is uh, a character who introduces even more melodrama into Sarah's life. Uh, she was actually an impoverished cousin of Sarah's, and uh, Sarah had her appointed as Anne's Lady of the Bedchamber. But a friendship grew between Anne and Abigail. Many people would uh, think because Abigail essentially showed Anne the compassion that Sarah really lacked. So when Sarah discovered that Abigail had married in secret, she rushed to inform the Queen, as that was a real no-go, only to find out that Anne had not only been present, but she had actually granted a dowry for the couple from the Privy Purse, which, as Keeper of the Privy Purse, Sarah really should have been aware of. The strained relationship becomes public knowledge when Sarah publicly argued with Anne in 1708 at a Thanksgiving service at St. Paul's Cathedral about what jewels Anne had worn to the service um, and then continued to push the Queen to publicly support the Whigs. This is even more shocking when uh, you realise that the Thanksgiving service was for a military victory that Sarah's husband had won. So Sarah, despite her political power, was not necessarily the most politically savvy person, shall we say, at times. So despite this rift, uh, Sarah retained all her offices uh, because of her husband's position as Captain General. They felt that if it became known that Sarah and Anne were on the outs, that would undermine John's position, which would affect the uh, conflict. So... Sarah, however, did not really get the memo and continued to publicly lobby the Queen in favour of the Whigs. And together with her husband and most of the Whig party, lobbied Anne to dismiss Abigail, who they believed had Tory leanings and was pushing Anne further towards the Tory parties. Anne refused, begged high-ranking politicians to oppose the motion, succeeded, and made Sarah and her husband look essentially ridiculous over making such a big deal out of a minor matter Sarah, enraged, implied that Anne and Abigail were having a lesbian affair. Uh, the final meeting between the, uh, Anne and Sarah happened in 1710, where according to Sarah's account, uh, she begged to know why their friendship was over and was rebuffed coldly by Anne. Uh, the Duke, realising that Sarah would be dismissed, begged the Queen to retain her for nine months until the military campaign was finished so that they could both retire honourably. Anne informed him that Sarah was to resign immediately and had two days to hand back her golden key of power. Uh, and when Sarah was told this, she told her husband to return the key immediately as her pride was 
really hurt. Just to make matters worse, Abigail was made keeper of the privy purse in her place. So she's out of power now, but how did her and her husband end up becoming exiled? So mass public opinion on the Spanish War of Succession changed and generally the public wanted peace and Anne took this as an opportunity to dismiss Sarah's husband, the Duke of Marlborough, uh, on quite possibly fake charges of embezzlement of funds to build Blenheim Palace, which she had granted them. Uh, So funding for the project was stopped uh, and the Marlboroughs had to leave England in disgrace. Um, However... Because uh, the Duke had been uh, campaigning with uh, many other uh, prominent members of the courts of Germany and the Holy Roman Empire, they essentially just toured those courts and were very popular uh, in them. However, Sarah never really seemed to have enjoyed being abroad and complained quite a lot about how they, whilst they were lauded away from home, they were still in disgrace in England. Queen Anne died in 1714 and the Marlborough's funnily enough, arrived back in England the exact same afternoon. This might not necessarily have been a coincidence, though, because there are rumours that Anne called them back herself, wanting to make up with them. Uh, And one eyewitness uh, claimed that the Queen had asked on her deathbed if the Marlboroughs had reached the shores yet, which, if true, is very tragic. And then we have the introduction of a totally new monarchy under George I from the House of Hanover. How does Sarah fit into this new monarchy? Um, So Sarah uh, continues in very similar patterns with another rise and another fall. The Duke of Marlborough had actually been a personal friend of the new King George when fighting the Spanish War of Succession. And his first words upon seeing the Duke again when they met as king was, my Lord Duke, I hope your troubles are now over. So they're very much in with uh, the House of Hanover. So John once again resumes his role as a personal advisor to the monarch, but... Sarah really takes a step back from politics at this point and essentially focuses on marrying off her grandchildren as successfully as possible. Unfortunately, however, uh, John actually suffered two strokes, uh, which took him out of the public eye, and Sarah really devoted herself to caring for him. He died in 1722, and she arranged a very large and lavish funeral for him, which in the world of Sarah Churchill was very much a um, gesture of love. After that, Sarah really turns her eyes to business. She concentrates on managing the family fortunes and estates, and was actually praised as being brilliant at it. She continued to invest in land, spent considerable time overseeing the completion of Blenheim Palace's construction, even though it was very fraught. Her and the architect argued a lot. She fired the first one and brought in a second one. I won't go into too much detail. Look it up, though. How Sarah managed to even turn architecture into a melodrama is quite frankly genius. She actually receives multiple proposals after her husband's death, proving that she was in fact still very much a babe but decided to remain single as she actually quite liked her independence. So that's her rise, but you mentioned a fall, so presumably it all goes wrong again. Not quite as dramatically as the first time, but yes, Sarah remains Sarah, and following the coronation of George II in 1727, Queen Caroline actually really tries very hard to cultivate Sarah's friendship, invites her to court on several occasions. But unfortunately... Uh, Sarah refused Caroline entry to her Wimbledon estate, which uh, rather put her on the outs when it came to court life uh, once again, and also meant that she was stripped of her final title of Ranger of Windsor Great Park. So yeah, Sarah remains Sarah. 
So as I've mentioned, Sarah's a very interesting character because she vacillates between political brilliance and political stupidity. And one of the things that she did that was, again, quite brilliant is in 1742, uh, she essentially attempts to ensure that history is written with her as the victor by uh, writing an autobiography, which really does prove that staying alive the longest uh, is a form of spite. So she dies in 1744 and was buried at the now-completed Blenheim Palace, and her husband was later exhumed from Westminster Abbey to be buried beside her, proving that Sarah was magnetic, even in death. So what do you think Sarah Churchill's legacy is? Sarah Churchill's legacy is being a very intelligent, in some ways very brilliant, and continuously interesting and difficult woman. Sarah went from rise to fall to rise to fall and there's lots to admire about her. She built herself up from minor gentry and quite impoverished from baronetcy to earldom to dukedom and uh, her and her husband campaigned tirelessly for their politically beliefs and at one point was the most powerful woman by some means or you know at least the second most powerful uh, woman in the country And even afterwards, she built herself up a personal fortune that was pretty, pretty profound. On the other hand, she was very proud. She was demanding. She was quite unkind to those around her at times. Most of her children really did not mourn her when she died. And yeah, she went from being the queen's right-hand woman to being sent into exile and disgrace. Not to mention, you know, bullying a woman who's mourning her husband, having public arguments with the Queen, and obviously the accusations of lesbianism to try and politically ruin both Abigail and Anne. So I would very much describe Sarah Churchill as a problematic babe. It's interesting you talk about these allegations of politically motivated lesbianism, because a lot of people nowadays want to read that romantic element into Sarah and Anne's relationship. Do you think it was present? I think that Anne was very reliant on Sarah. Sarah was her closest companion for many years and that she did admire Sarah an awful lot. Sarah actually published some of the letters that Anne uh, had sent to her which is one of the reasons why she was essentially exiled and they are very charged letters if there was a relationship I unfortunately think it was quite one-sided Sarah was incredibly devoted to Anne uh, when Anne was a princess but as I said actually thought Anne was quite boring and spent quite a lot of time ignoring and avoiding Anne when she was queen. And I think what she did was incredibly hurtful. Uh, Anne was very hurt by Sarah's accusations and Sarah publishing private letters. And yeah, the fact that Sarah was supposedly surprised that their friendship had come to an end is in itself possibly the most shocking part of this whole thing. But yeah, I um, so yeah, I don't know. When it comes to a romantic uh, feelings, what Anne's were, um, or how Sarah's were, at least at the start. But there were certainly some very, very devoted female friendships at the time. And I would also be uncomfortable to purely gal-pal them, and just say they were just friends. But the truth is we'll never know. There's a lot to read into this, and I'm certainly not going to stop anyone from interpreting it. But the historian in me does sort of 
force me to say we'll never know. So you talked a bit about Sarah being kind of a good historian and a good PR person, being able to kind of reinvent history in her own image. Could you talk a bit more about kind of what the effects of that have been? Yeah, so I don't think we can entirely put this one down to Sarah. I'm sure she would like us to. Um, but Sarah outliving Anne and her other political enemies, who I don't go into, but seriously read up on them. She had so many. Really did allow her to control the narrative with that autobiography. And whilst she's, in many people's eyes, slightly irredeemable and certainly difficult, she is actually still quite famous um whereas Anne very much has become a post note in our country's history barely anyone remembers William and Mary and she's a footnote to them after that she didn't have a particularly long reign but in many ways Sarah's autobiography and her friendship with Anne has also continued to keep Anne in the light, so I do think that after this very tumultuous relationship, these two women are still very much inextricably linked and will always be. And I think that's partially due to um, Sarah's PR efforts, both by making herself very prominent at court and her later rewriting of history, which probably makes her a bad historian, to be honest. Um, so yeah, I think that Sarah Anne and to a certain extent Abigail are forever intertwined in the annals of history. It's interesting that we have these different physical representations of Sarah's legacy in this way as well. Like we have the written autobiography and we have the physical building of Blended Palace, which is still such a huge part of Oxfordshire and Oxfordshire's identity. And then, of course, we have the Churchill line ending in someone like Winston Churchill or um, Diana Spencer was also uh, descended yeah. from her. So we seem to have this physical representation of Sarah's life still, whereas I'm certainly not aware of much of what Queen Anne achieved still having a kind of physical presence in, in England today. No, the Spanish War of Succession is very much only interesting to military historians interested in that period. And whilst there are books about John and about this, uh, Sarah very much is the more written about figure uh, and I think it's because of our interest in monarchy and our interest in scandal uh, and in aristocrats and rich people. She is a rags to riches to a certain extent. She was still gentry, if minor and somewhat impoverished gentry. But she did end up with Blenheim Palace and uh, as Duchess. Sarah very much did position herself and her children. She made sure that all of her children married and grandchildren married extremely well. And whilst her children might not have liked her, they certainly accepted her help in marrying off all the spawn. And so she made sure that her family and her legacy was secure. She actually had a very complicated relationship with Blenheim Palace because she wanted to hire a different architect. But after John's death, she, she became very, very focused on completing the building because that had been John's interest. But she never really liked Blenheim Palace. She barely lived there, um, but she was buried there. So her relationship with Oxfordshire is also quite complicated. Thank you so much for joining us, Emily. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Women in Oxford's History. Join us again next month when we'll explore the life of another woman in Oxford's past. <laughs>